0: You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. I'm your host, Jessica, and today Tom sits down with Thomas Homer Dixon, the author of the new book, Commanding Hope, The Power We Have to Renew a World in Peril. Thomas is also the author of the book, The Ingenuity Gap, and now directs the Cascade Institute at Royal Roads University in Victoria, Canada. He is also a professor at the Environment at the University of Waterloo. Let's listen in as Tom and Thomas discuss why and how the world is getting more complex, the role of complexity scientists, and the focus of the Cascade Institute.
1: Thomas Homer Dixon, welcome to the Getting Smart Podcast. I have been looking forward to this for 20 years. Uh, I, I, I was a groupie of uh, Ingenuity Gap and have been a fan of your work for uh, a couple decades. So thrilled to have you on the show. Thomas, you often refer to yourself as a complexity scientist. What, what does a complexity scientist do?
2: Well, a, a complexity scientist looks at complex systems and, uh, and it starts from the assumption that our world is made up of more complex systems than simple systems. So many of the things that we're trying to uh, trying to manage, many of the problems we're trying to manage today are characterized by complexity whether it's climate change or the global economy or changes in our economic systems, instabilities in financial systems, the pandemic, uh, the spread of disease through societies, but even going down from the global level to the national or the community level, even interactions within a town or a village are highly complex in a technical sense. Uh, and, And we can get into some of the details of what that means, but generally, If you were going to point to one particular attribute that characterizes complexity, it's that uh, small things can make a big difference. And sometimes really big changes in the system don't make much difference at all. So there's a disproportionality between the size of the cause and the size of the effect. Whereas in simple systems, a small cause usually causes a small effect and a big cause causes a big effect. But in complex systems, the relationships between causes and effect become much more, uh, much more um, disproportionate, and the result is that prediction is really hard. And the result is that sometimes complex systems can flip from one state to another, from one equilibrium to another, mm. uh, with much much warning, as we see for, for a financial crash or a pandemic hits the world. So that disproportionality of cause and effect is called nonlinearity by complex systems theorists. So when you hear people say. Uh, the system is nonlinear. They're basically saying it's complex. I can go on at great length well, because I, I've been teaching uh, this stuff for decades. So, but that, you know, in, if I'm doing, going to really su- summarize it down in a very short form, that's probably the the shortest I can do. Uh, I
1: appreciate that. It's uh, complexity. It's, uh, and your, your work is inherently interdisciplinary. Um, and it, it's, inc- I guess, increasingly interesting that the complex systems that we've set up are, are now interacting absolutely with natural systems in unanticipated ways and um, and so both um, new um, new things like this pandemic are uh, ha- happening at the intersection of natural and man made uh, systems that's right and, as well as innovation uh, often happens at the boundaries uh, of, of systems so um, we, we appreciate the work that that you're doing and the way you approach it. Uh, as I, I said, uh, you, you must have uh, been inspired to write The Ingenuity Gap uh, more than 20 years ago. It came out about 18 years ago. It was, for me, a really profound book because it so clearly articulated the fact that the world's getting more complex, these complex systems that we're talking about. And that complexity is growing faster than our civic problem-solving capacity. Uh, and in fact, if you live in America, our civic capacity for problem-solving is going down while complexity is going up. And that's a that's Gets a really scary X. And the and the gap is the uh, ingenuity gap. So a, a couple of questions about that. Do Do you recall the observations the systems that led you to spot that gap 20 years ago and and isn't it
2: worse today than it was 20 years ago uh, it's vastly worse but not worse in a way that i didn't expect i mean i wrote the book because i could see this problem developing very much as you describe it so the gap is a, a gap between our rising requirement for ingenuity and i have a very specific definition of what i mean by ingenuity and our uh, increasingly Uncertain or limited supply of ingenuity, and by ingenuity I mean solutions to problems, and by solutions to problems I mean uh, algorithms in a technical sense, or if you want to uh, use the vernacular, recipes for how we take the components of our world, uh, the the uh, the physical stuff in our environment, our natural environment, uh, the social the social things surrounding us. Uh, people, institutions, and combine them in various ways to solve our problems. Sort of, uh, you know, you think of a recipe, it's a set of instructions for how you bring things together to produce a product or an outcome that you want. And and our requirement for those sets of instructions is rising very fast, which means we need more sets of instructions that are more complex, that are longer, uh, produced at a faster rate. And our ability to supply those sets of instructions seems to be declining in some respects. So what, what led me to this perspective was uh, a, a, uh, a, a number of years of work, almost a decade of work on the relationship between environmental stress and violent conflict in poor countries. So water scarcity, uh, depletion of forests and fisheries of agricultural land and how that could contribute to poverty, to say mass migrations, that could in then turn produce ethnic conflict or genocides or revolutions and rebellions within these countries. And I realized as I was uh, dealing with this problem that some societies were actually quite good at coping with their environmental stresses and others weren't. And as I started to dig down underneath, I realized that the societies that weren't seemed to have an incapacity to deliver the solutions when and where they were needed. And so the ingenuity gap theory emerged as a way of trying to straighten out this problem in my mind. And then I realized it could really be applied more generally to the world. And that's and that's uh, the uh, the work that resulted in the book, The Ingenuity Gap. Well, we appreciate it. Our,
1: uh, our team just got off a call where we introduced a new report that we've written about the 20 big um, invention opportunities in learning and development. And our observation about all 20 of those is that in an intermediated space like education or uh, civic uh, government, almost every um, invention is a combination of tools and practices and agreements or policies. And, and so you need this complex web of new tools used in new ways around uh, new social agreements. And that's true in education, but it's clearly true when it comes to uh, to climate change and the civic agreements that we need to put in place uh, uh, to combat the mess that we've made of this planet.
2: So one thing I, I would say that it's very important uh, that you emphasized before is that many of our problems now cross this boundary between the, the natural and the social. And there's there's uh, uh, there's a much more um, interaction and engagement between the natural worlds and the social worlds and the velocity of information and material and energy crossing that boundary has increased enormously, and so we're we're finding that we're running into a lot of difficulties in managing that relationship. And climate change is a really good example of uh, the challenges we're facing when it comes to delivering solutions to the problems we face. I mean, for generations, for centuries, we'd have been able to dump massive amounts of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere and not really worry about it very much. But now that's rebounding on us and producing extra complexities that we really aren't capable of coping with, it seems. And, that's, and, and in many respects, that becomes then a social problem. It's a material or natural problem that has rebounded on us. And the only way we can cope with it is to, is to ramp up our social ingenuity in the form of new forms of governance and economic responses, carbon taxes regulations mm. and the like. And that's all, uh, That's uh, it requires strong governments, strong states, competent bureaucracies, requires trust in governments, which requires belief in scientific fact. All of these things are now, uh, it seems in short supply.
1: Yes, they, they are. Um, the, the other interesting related observation that we made is that um, increasingly, innovation in the public space requires a combination of uh, public, private, and philanthropic funding. Uh, Almost always, at least two of the three formed as some sort of a public-private partnership. So in addition to the problems being more complex, the, uh, the solution sets and the require for new forms of collaboration and putting the right form of capital to work against the problem seems increasingly important.
2: So one thing you know this all sounds very dire, and it is, but one uh, advantage we have nowadays it's an enormous advantage is our capacity to ramp up combinatorial innovation so you've been talking about how uh, how solutions result from combinations of procedures and institutions in the case of resource supply, from combinations of philanthropic, private and public right. uh, funders so So because of the interconnectivity in our world, uh, we have many more of these combinatorial possibilities than we had before. So so our capacity to innovate is actually much greater. We're just not delivering the innovations as fast as as we need them. So
1: now now that you can go to Wix and stand up a website for 50 bucks and you can access TensorFlow on your phone, you have access to machine learning apps, you can go to GitHub and get a bunch of free uh, code and, and really, over the weekend, we we during the pandemic, we have, and and during vaccine rollout, uh, we've seen computer scientists stand up really elegant solutions over a weekend uh, to help people find a vaccine. So this is right. a, an example of a combinatorial exactly. innovations that very yep. quickly scaffold uh, based on resources. So there's never been a better time to innovate. It's never been easier for young people in high school or college to access these and to. Jump into complex problems and make a difference, and so that's the the interesting dissonance of our age. Exactly,
2: exactly, exactly.
1: What's the Cascade Institute uh, at uh, Royal Roads?
2: So, the Cascade Institute is is intended to leverage complexity science to try to find solutions to some of these major problems humanity is facing. Uh, basically, looking for what we call high leverage intervention points. So, on the assumption that these these social ecological systems, uh, connected economies, uh, environmental climate systems, energy systems are all complex, then there are uh, almost certainly places, if you want to achieve positive change, there are places where you can intervene, sort of turn a screw or pull a lever without exerting an enormous amount of force that can produce a really large divergence in the pathway of evolution of the system. Uh, the divergence from its, its current pathway. So, so uh, that's leveraging nonlinearity, uh, trying to find the small things that will make a really big difference. So we start from what we call a WIT perspective. Uh, WIT as in worldviews, the W in worldviews, the I in institutions, and the T in technologies, so W-I-T. We assume that societies are built around clusters of interconnected worldviews, institutions, and technologies, or WIT sets as we call them. And we map these width sets using some fairly advanced systems mapping tools to try to identify where these intervention points are and uh and it's it's very cool work theoretically and that could have enormous practical benefit there are about three or four groups in the world that are doing this kind of work at the moment
1: um i i love the mission of the place um it's it's interesting 25 years ago um after doing a master's in energy finance, I was trying to create an interdisciplinary center uh, with some similar characteristics, and then a public school system asked me if I wanted to be a public school superintendent. So if I, <laughs> if I wasn't doing uh, what I'm doing, I, I think I'd be running an interdisciplinary uh, institute like Cascade. So we we appreciate your work.
2: Well, I should say one thing, you know, if we're, we're, we're speaking in the, well, you're not in the, in, in, the, in the Northwest right at the moment, but I, I think at least some of the time you're located in the Northwest right. in the Seattle area and the Cascade Institute is on Vancouver Island. This is the region of Cascadia. For those people who aren't familiar, it's the bioregion of Cascadia. So there's kind of a double entendre to the, yes. the name, uh, but the, the symbol, the logo for the Cascade Institute is a series of dominoes falling over. And uh, so what we're trying to induce are positive cascades uh, but it, it, there's also the sense that um, our environmental challenges are so staggeringly important now. Being in a part of the world where environmentalism is part of the everyday culture seemed appropriate.
1: And we we love the double entendre in the, your use of cascade. Um, you you bring it into your work quite frequently when you think about how complex systems change and look for cascading. Exactly. Uh, impact. So we appreciate that as well as the beauty of the Cascade Mountains. Um, congratulations on your new book, Commanding Hope, The Power We Have to Renew a World in Peril. It's timely. Uh, it's thought provoking. It uh, starts out dark, but as uh, you you talk, uh, as the name suggests, Commanding Hope, that you do uh, offer uh, ways that people can get involved and how we, we can make a difference um, I, I love this opening summary. Um, it talks about how today's globe-spanning crisis all stem from common sources, beliefs and values that are too self-centered, political systems that are hidebound, bound economies that are too rapacious, and technologies that are too dirty for a small, crowded planet with dwindling the resources and fraying natural systems. <laughs> That's a pretty freaking dark opening.
2: Yeah, I worked on that. For quite a while
1: <laughs> and that is a beautiful beautiful short dark summary of uh our shared condition on this spinning globe
2: <laughs> but notice the notice the wit elements in there you know i actually pick up the worldview elements the institutional elements the technological elements quite intentionally because we have to start thinking and in intervening on all three of those dimensions simultaneously
1: I. it's why i love the statement um, who was who Stephanie May and why was she an inspiration for this book?
2: Yes, absolutely. So Stephanie May, there, there are two narrative arcs in the book. One is relates to my children uh, who essentially grew up uh, while I was writing the book. And then the second is Stephanie May. Stephanie May was a, uh, a Connecticut housewife in the 1950s who uh, became very concerned about the use, uh, the testing of nuclear weapons in the atmosphere by the United States and the Soviet Union. Uh, atomic bombs and hydrogen bombs by that point. And they were spreading enormous amounts of radioactivity around the entire planet through the atmosphere. And that was radioactivity was bioaccumulating in, uh, into, for instance, milk, uh, cow's milk that mothers were feeding to their kids and increasing the chance of leukemia quite substantially for them. And Stephanie learned about this. She became very upset and decided to try to do something. And she started organizing mothers to, protests, the testing of nuclear weapons in the atmosphere. And she started at her kitchen table in the farmhouse in Connecticut in 1956. And she uh, stimulated a global movement of mothers uh, through her actions that ultimately contributed in a major way to the partial test ban treaty in 1963, which was the treaty that brought testing, put testing underground, uh, that agreed by the United States and the Soviet Union and later other countries signed on. Uh, and uh, dramatically reduce the concentration of radioactivity in the atmosphere. And, and I look at her case, I was very fortunate to come across her her memoirs, unpublished memoirs, and her scrapbooks. And I was able to, to uh, discern the underlying hope and motivations that she had in pursuing this campaign, which seemed, frankly, quite hopeless a lot of the time. I mean, at the chance that she was going to be able to change the course of these massive military industrial bureaucracies, scientific establishments. At the, time, at the height of the cold war, it seemed crazy to think that you could do something like this, but she did. And I, I, I talk about this story all the way through the book and the particular actions she took and how she engaged with political leaders. Uh, she, she, her scrapbooks are extraordinary because they, they contain correspondence with some of the most remarkable people and powerful people alive at that time. And uh, uh, and and so she becomes kind of iconic as a representative of commanding hope of the type of hope that I am proposing within the book. And also, frankly, a a clear example of what one person can do when they put their minds to it and organize themselves properly. Well, and the other thing that's interesting is that it turns out that she, I didn't know this at the time I discovered her story that she's the mother she, she is the mother of Elizabeth May, who became the leader of the Green Party in Canada and who actually turned out to be a friend of mine I, I didn't know that at the time I discovered her story, so the serendipity was quite remarkable
1: i I, I love the the lessons that you found in her story For those of us in education uh, that, that think about what personal attributes um, are are most important uh, you, you have a Beautiful summary of the reasons that she gives you hope. And it was um, her intellectual honesty, acute moral clarity, you called it. Number one. Uh, Number two uh, was her um, astuteness. Uh, She understood uh, the context of complex systems uh, quite well, was a student of the cause she cared so deeply about. And that her hope was powerful, dogged perseverance. Those are three pretty great attributes for, uh, for an advocate.
2: And I build my notion of hope around those three components what I call honest hope, astute hope, and powerful hope. Honest hope, Stephanie understood this inter- issue deeply. She read the scientific reports, she understood, and she also understood the difficulty that she was facing in, in trying to pursue this, this campaign to try to stop the testing. So she didn't fool herself about the probabilities she faced. Uh, And she was astute because she had a very, very clear understanding of the perspectives of the people she was dealing with around her. So she was able to uh, effectively operate as a political operator, as a political person in these circumstances to maximize her effect. And she was able to work with people who opposed her and she was able to bring on board many allies of people who didn't realize they supported her. But then when she communicated with them effectively, they did support her. And then her powerful hope was she had a she had a vision of the future. She knew what she wanted, and she so she could point herself in one direction and pursue it with real with real vigor. And so that was motivating. It gave her a sense of agency that that uh, that persisted even in the darkest times of her campaign.
1: Uh, Thomas, I'd like to shift gears and and talk about education and specifically what young people uh, should know about climate change. But I want to. I wanna pivot off your comment about agency. I I guess my study of climate change and artificial intelligence uh, suggests that that perhaps the most important disposition that we can uh, develop uh, in young people is the sense of agency, Uh, the the humility to understand that they've walked into complexity, but the confidence that they they can effectuate a change on the world. Um, Does that resonate with you? the importance Absolutely. of the agency?
2: Absolutely. In fact, uh, for me, hope is a necessary condition or a sine qua non for agency. And and uh, Tom, I this book didn't originally focus on hope. It wasn't intended to be about hope originally when I started in 2012, but I had started writing it twice throughout tens of thousands of words because it wasn't coming together properly. And then around 2016, actually before President Trump was elected, interestingly, I realized that what gave me the greatest sense of despair was the possibility my children might grow up in a world that could be very dangerous and volatile and they would lose hope and that i had to I had to figure out a way to tell them that they could retain their hope and yet still be grounded in a realistic understanding of the world and not fool themselves about the nature of the world and uh, and so so it's all about agency. It's all about sustaining their sense of agency, because if you don't sustain a sense of agency, then, then the world becomes immediately a very dangerous place. Some of the worst things that can happen to you are going to happen because you're not trying to stop them from happening. Uh, so, so I think I think with a problem like climate change, and if climate change issue figures throughout the whole book, because it's so large and we all seem so small that it can encourage us just to throw our hands up in despair. And uh, and and the first thing you do when you talk to a young person about climate change is is you you say well you can do these things you can change your lifestyles in these ways you can get involved in these other ways you can uh, uh, you can push towards a positive world maybe we won't get there exactly that way but we'll get maybe to something that's 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 adequately good so you give them a sense of possibility for the future uh, and. Uh, and, and I think, you know, interestingly enough, the kids around the world are the ones with the most powerful moral voice now. Greta Thunberg and her, her uh, peers around the world have stood up and said to the parents, you were supposed to take care of us and you haven't. This is a moral calamity. What are you doing? And I think, I think that argument has had enormous force around the planet in motivating uh, parents and adults and governments to push faster on the climate change problem. So yeah, kids can do a lot and they have a particularly powerful moral voice uh, that they can express through their agency.
1: Do do you have a sense uh, in in school how and where they should be able to learn about climate change?
2: This is tough. Um, uh, uh, It's very scary, right? I've seen my children grow up with it and learn about it. We tried, we intentionally kept them uninformed about these issues until well over 10 years old i think now they're fully informed because they hear me talking doing talks like this all the time and they can't escape me talking about it but but um uh we were quite cautious i think uh i I think it has the same kind of character as it must have had in the 1950s and 60s when kids were told to duck and cover under chairs and and benches and uh, this sense of impending doom that sort of constant threat of existential existential threat um, but i think when uh, when children emerge into middle school and high school i think it's time to give them the full the full briefing and not not to pull any punches because they'll find out anyway and if and any gaps are going to be filled with rumor that they don't understand properly so it's best to give them a full scientific understanding but it has to be coupled with this with with this program of of possibility for them. And that's true for all of us. Every time I get some new scientific information, like I was just reading some really quite despairing scientific papers a few minutes ago, I think, I think okay, so what's the response here? What are we going to do? I think we all need that as a way of uh, s- sustaining ourselves in a frightening world.
1: Do you, do you have a sense of how uh, school and system heads could productively engage young people uh, in solutions?
2: Well, it's always tricky. You know, this is a political challenge and it requires political mobilization and schools aren't supposed to be explicitly engaged in turning children into political agents. But I think, I think it's really important for in our democracies for them to understand that they do have democratic tools available to them. They have democratic voice. Uh, the other thing, I guess, a little bit more technical is that I think schools should start emphasizing more broadly, a systems understanding. Uh, some of the issues we started talking about at the beginning—the connections between the material and social worlds—while while the reductionist understanding that's conventional, sort of pulling things apart and analyzing the parts that we get, for instance, in chemistry and physics. While that's very powerful. I think there needs to be a lot of emphasis on how the pieces are put together and the kind of novelty or emergent phenomena that arise when you put a lot of pieces together. And this is this is something I only really understood in graduate school effectively, but there's no reason in principle why it can't be communicated to young children. And, and, and the reason it's important in part is because it's a source of hope. When you realize that that complexity can generate enormous novelty and possibility, Possibilities you can't actually see properly yet. It gives you the sense of, you know, that there's something to push for, to to uh, because and to try to imagine uh, things that we can't see yet. You know, I I, I say that if on August the eighteenth, twenty eighteen, somebody had said, you know, a girl of fifteen is going to sit on the steps of the Swedish Parliament building with a little sign saying "Climate Strike," school climate strike and she was going to mobilize tens, if not hundreds of millions of people around the world to galvanize, to demand climate action, we would have said, that's a ridiculous idea. And yet, it was just in what Stuart Kaufman calls the adjacent possible. It was right there. And Greta Thunberg pulled it across the boundary and made it possible. And that's That's a function of the complexity of our world. That's a wonderful thing. And it can be exciting. It can give give kids a a real sense. If They have that systems understanding. They can be excited about the possibilities in front of them.
1: Our sense is that in addition to making sure that kids get uh, accurate and timely science education, that it can be simple cultural uh, efforts as well. One of our favorite schools, when you walk in the door, uh, has an environmental monitor that says, here's how our... Uh, school. Here's our energy footprint. Here's how we're doing on, uh, on conservation. So they put up a dashboard of, of indicators of how they're collectively uh, doing on, on their environmental stewardship. So just making, uh, making people aware of uh, what your collective footprint is, can be a subtle, but powerful way to inform a, uh, a, a collective environment.
2: Absolutely. So that information feedback, it's all part of what you might call nudge economics or nudge psychology, giving people the information they need so they can adjust in real time their behavior. And, uh, and, and we have amazing uh, technologies for measurement and tracking performance of systems now. So, so that information can be made available to people.
1: We uh, in our latest book called difference making, we, uh, we also argued that uh, particularly in high school, Creating space for young people to uh, to frame and take on projects of uh, of their own identification, just a chance to go deep maybe it's a science fair uh, just a chance to go deep on a topic of interest can be room in the curriculum for young people to to take on uh, a project related to climate
2: mm-hmm. absolutely
1: uh, Thomas you, you have been a, a prodigious learner for 30 years, uh, how do you continue to focus your own learning? And uh, do, do you have any tips on how to, how to make your personal learning more productive?
2: Well, you know, I'm a relentlessly curious person, and I've sort of skipped from one challenge or one problem to another through my life. You know, I, I described how I was dealing with this environmental scarcity and conflict issue in the 1990s, and that led me to the whole problem of innovation, how societies innovate. And, uh, and then out of that emerged, you know, I discovered some interesting research about the relationship between crisis and innovation. Uh, and that led to my subsequent book, The Upside of Down, which looked at the relationship between catastrophe and breakdown and possibilities for innovation. Uh, so, you know, at each stage in my life, I've, uh, I've discovered some new challenge and moved on. Sometimes, I mean, frankly, before I've completely tied off the earlier one, I think one of the core elements in my intellectual frame, I guess you could say, is that curiosity, is that just that sense for the wonder of the world. And there's so many things in such a short life to learn and explore. And also the sense that a fundamental belief that knowledge can make a real difference, that we're not going to solve these problems, unlike some folks, who have been leaders of major countries by being more ignorant or by ignoring knowledge or downgrading or depreciating knowledge in some way. The knowledge actually is the key ultimately to our survival. So the combination of the curiosity and that commitment to knowledge have uh, motivated me throughout throughout my entire life. I guess the the other thing to, to address your question really specifically is I try not to take on too much at once. So you have, to, you have to know one particular area or topic reasonably well before you add on another one. And then you've got two together. You've got that common material possibility, and you look at the interactions between those. And then you, maybe you can add another one. But you have to be reasonably, you, you have to be able to walk before you can run. You have to be reasonably methodical about combining ideas from different disciplines. And it, it, takes, uh, it takes a certain amount of uh, diligence, I think.
1: Unless you're Bill Gates, uh, he, I've, I've seen him take on new topics over a weekend and come back a world expert. Uh, by, by the way, did you uh, enjoy Bill's new book on uh, climate?
2: I have not read it yet. It's on my reading list. Uh, and, you know, it's, of course, getting enormous amounts of attention. And, uh, and it's contentious from what I understand. So I'm interested in seeing how that conversation unfolds.
1: It's great. It's comprehensive. But uh, we'd, we'd offer people commanding hope the power we have to renew a world in peril. Read this one first. It's great. Um, as we said, the summary uh, lays it out in, uh, in accurate terms. But I think you'll come away smarter and uh, more hopeful about our life together if you read it. Thomas Homer Dixon, it's been a treat to have you on the Getting Smart Podcast.
2: Thank you very much. It's been great to be with you.
0: Thanks so much to Thomas for joining us on this week's episode. We appreciate the way he navigates our complex world and the language he puts to unique relationships. For more information on complexity, check out our recent episode, number 317 with Pavel Luksha on the future of skills. That's it for today, listeners, and remember to leave us a review. It really helps. For the Getting Smart Podcast, this is Jessica signing off.